Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Bucket List Gamers podcast. Slightly different one for you this week. So we are first going to talk about two items on the list, which are number 30's Manic Miner from 1983 and number 55's Jet Set Willy from 1984. However, we aren't going to talk about them for long because there's not an awful lot to say. So what we're going to do is instead talk about games that we think should be on the list that aren't. But before we come to them, I'll introduce my co-host, Eddie. Hello. And we will talk about Manic Miner and Jet Set Willy, if we must. (laughs) So, both created by Matthew Smith for ZX Spectrum. And at the time, again, we've said this before, Pac-Man, Tetris, those kind of games, at the time, groundbreaking, especially Manic Miner. First time that people on the Spectrum had really seen that level of platforming and colour, and especially the music that they managed to get out of it, wasn't a common thing back then, especially not from guys in the bedroom that sat there and coded games, essentially, which is what this was. Matthew Smith pretty much coded it start to finish in his bedroom. And it's it's a trippy one. I mean, I read I read an interview in, in the Retro Gamer magazine with Matthew Smith, and bless him, I think he's he's had quite the life. Should I say, based on based on some of the reactions to the questions he was asked, I think he's he's um, he's seen a lot of things. So I don't know if these games were influenced by drink, drugs, or whatever, but they are very surreal, very influenced by British humour, like Monty Python, that kind of thing. So when you die, a big foot comes down and crushes you, or a, a boot in the first game and a foot in the second one, and there's there's that kind of influence to it. And I'm, I admit, I had both of these for Commodore 64, so I didn't have the Spectrum versions, I had the Commodore 64 versions. And at the time, yeah, I thought they were brilliant. Some of the sprite work, especially in Jet Set Willy, is unbelievable for for a Commodore and a Spectrum and an Atari and the, the types of home console it got released on. With that said, we will be still judging them by the criteria of if you've only got time to play 100 games before you die, would these two be games that you picked? And for me, probably not, even though I've got that nostalgia level to it. I mean, it's it's fascinating to look at how they were made and sort of the issues which we'll come on to with Jet Set Willy. But yeah, Manic Miner was a, a huge thing when it came out, and, and you can sort of see why, and it, it, I can see why it's so high on the list, because... Retro Gamer absolutely love this game. They are absolutely obsessed with it. It's like, if you check out the earlier issues of the magazine, there's like an article a week or an article a month or however often they came out. On Manic Miner, it's like just a constant of how much they love that game, which is fine if that's what they grew up on. For me and you, it wasn't because it came out before we were born. And I, like I said, I did have it, but it wasn't one I ever put a lot of time into. There were games on the Commodore 64 that I would play relentlessly, and neither of these were it. Yeah, um, I I never had um, a ZX Spectrum. I never had an Atari or anything like that. So I, I have no physical hands-on experience with either of these games. Before doing this, I did a bit of research um watched a couple of videos checked out a couple of uh, interviews with matthew smith um but yeah he he designed and built manic miner when he was 16 which is phenomenal uh, achievement for someone particularly when um gaming and home game consoles were in sort of their infancy 
pretty much unheard of. You had professional games designers and that was about it. No one homebrewed anything. No one made anything. But apparently because of um, he had two previous successes with like little mini video games that were sort of rip ripoffs of Space Invaders and stuff like that and a Pac-Man ripoff. However, he found that developing for the uh, ZX Spectrum was so fiddly because the level editor was just terrible. He'd started designing the games on his TRS-80 and then he literally found a way to hook the two consoles up so he could literally port from the TRS-80 into the ZX Spectrum and and play test it and he he built um, manic miner in six weeks or eight weeks something like that it was a ridiculously short time frame for how competent the game is because i mean it, it's you're a miner called willy um and th- there is a sort of continuity from manic miner into jet set willy and when i say miner i mean someone who digs not a child Um, Just thought I'd clarify that. But the enemy types are all distinct from themselves. So in like some levels, there's like penguins that look like penguins, uh, which for a 16 or sub 16 bit console is is a phenomenal achievement. Yeah. I mean, like you say, not when we review these and put ratings on them and say we haven't got a lot to say about them, not to take anything away from Matthew Smith, because what he did. I mean, it's a different time as well. Like, if somebody put together a game as competent as Manic Miner for a current console now, you'd be blown away by it at 16. But you'd also go, well, there's loads of courses out there on how to program for these consoles, and there's loads of guides on the internet, and there's there's all these different resources that you could look into and try and figure it out. He would have had nothing. He would have been in his bedroom with the console, like you say, with this this other console that he's more familiar with, and just figured it out himself. And and to to do that at sixteen to the level that Manic Miner is, is remarkable. Like he must be like a savant or something to be able to do that. Is just I, I can't get my head around it. Like I I couldn't write that game now. Yeah. Even with all the guides and like, do you know what I mean? With with everything at my disposal, I couldn't sit down and make that game now. And he did it at sixteen in an era where there was no help whatsoever. Yeah. Um. It, to be fair, given the interviews and stuff like that, he does seem to have been a bit of a child prodigy. He could like read the newspaper when he was like fully and digest it and understand it when he was about four. So he was pro proper clever kid. And yeah, to develop this and. Uh, Manic Miner's pretty safe compared to Jet Set Willy, which, as you say, goes really bizarre um, in some places. But it, it does seem like he's had the typical child prodigy, gets a bit of fame, gets a bit of money to his name, and then just goes off the deep end, which is really sad to say, because despite the fact that Jet Set Willy is still quite a fantastic achievement it it took them eight months i think to build that because there was a bit of an issue with his pay apparently so at 16 he earned throughout the first couple of months to a year of manic minor being released he earned about 30 grand which back in 1983 is a phenomenal amount of money for an adult Mm. let alone a kid yeah when you you think you could buy a house for like nine grand back then yeah, exactly. So he'd, he'd like earn enough to buy three comfortably sized houses. 
at least. Yeah. It's a lot of money. Like in today's terms, it, you're looking at what? Well, well, I'd say it's like probably over a hundred k. Oh yeah. In easy. today's in today's money, easily maybe probably more. Given given the, the escalation of how things have got more expensive, I'd say you're closer looking at over a quarter of a million. Like I know yeah. it doesn't completely equate, but when you look at what you could buy back then and what it costs now, the same thing. Yeah, you've got a phenomenal amount of money for for a sixteen year old. Like I can't imagine what I'd have done if I had that level of money at that age. I I would have gone off the rails as well, a hundred percent. Yeah, um, and he appears to have been a bit headstrong is the nicest way I can say because he didn't think they were paying him fast enough and that's why he terminated his contract with the development company which I think was called Bug Bite Entertainment and he went away and founded his own little gaming company with another employee of Bug Bite and that's when they made Jet Set Willy but instead of the eight weeks it took them to make Manic Miner it took them eight months, which back then was ridiculously long for game development. Now you're talking years to create a fully crafted experience, whereas back then you were put, you were talking like two, three months max to develop a game, and he took nearly triple the time to do it. So I think that kind of is in part due to the fact that he was on benders and burning uh, the candle <laughs> yeah. at both ends <laughs> quite a lot. Which I... I... Don't blame him for, to be honest. Like I, I would do exactly the same thing in his position. The game would have been a second thought if I got thirty grand in my back pocket in nineteen eighty three. Developing another game would have been, yeah, I'll do that when I get to it. I'm just going to enjoy myself for a bit, which is exactly what he did, which is fair enough. But yeah, I think the thing about Jet Set Willy, uh, Jet Set Willy, is that, like you say, eight months of development and then it released with a bug where you can't complete it. So again. Big achievement to build a game like that at that age on your own, pretty much. I think you maybe got a little bit more help on two, uh, on Jet Set Willy, sorry. But yeah, it's still massive achievement. But to hold them to the standards of today, if you released a game after a long development cycle and it had a bug in it which literally prevented you from finishing the game, it would get absolutely annihilated. And like the, the obvious comparison is Cyberpunk, because that took longer than expected to develop, and it released, and it was a mess. But it was a mess you could complete, whereas this was, it released, and it was a really good game, apart from there was one room in it called The Attic, I believe. Yeah. And as soon as you entered that, it pushed all the code sideways and basically meant that you couldn't finish the game. And you need to go through the attic, so it's not like you could give it a miss and 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 work around it. You literally couldn't do. And they they sort of tried to fob people off a bit, didn't they, as well? Because they were like, "Oh, when you go into the attic, it releases poisonous gas into these other rooms, and that's why you die as soon as you go in them." And it's like, "Well, no, it, it was a programming error. Just be honest about it, basically." But I think it was fans that actually fixed it, wasn't it? So it was people who'd. Was it the first person that completed it, obviously, came up with like a fix and then told them what the fix was? Yeah, so essentially, the weird thing is, so when they first released Manic Miner, the company and him basically put rolled out a challenge to people because um, it was one of the few games that you could complete, really. It wasn't just a, you played a level, it then gave you the next level, but it was the same level as the first one, just faster. It was a sort of a... St- 
it had different biomes really that you could complete and you got to the end of the game and you got a sort of a, an end game story finish to it. Um, so the company basically said that they the first person to uh, finish the game and there was a secret code in the last level of the game that once you finished it properly, it gave you, I think it was a fish and a sword graphic. And if you sent the solution to the puzzle into the game developing company, which was Swordfish, um, they would give them a, I think it was a colour TV as a prize. However, because he was that arrogant about not being paid quick enough, they essentially pulled him out. He took Manic Miner with him because of how his contract clause fell. And he went off, started his own company, and the, basically the the competition just collapsed. So they, they never did anything with it. However, it was the bloke who completed Manic Miner first and put his name forward and followed by the two runners-up who were the ones that solved the issue with Jet Set Willy. Um, and right. they came forward and went, oh, here's, here's what it looks like. And I think it was just a simple case of it was a negative when it should have been a positive, and that is the simple piece of coding that then just skewed the rest of the game for them. Yeah, I think it, it happened as well on not the same issue, but according, and I can't verify this, this is this is Wikipedia talking, but I think when they released it on the, uh, the Commodore 64 and the BBC Micro, a different room had a bug in it, so I think it was the wine cellar, you couldn't get all the objects in it, and the point of Jet Set Willy is, so the, the sort of storyline behind these two games, we've not really explained it, is. So in Manic Miner, you're Willy the Miner, and you, you're mining to find a treasure of some description at the end of it all. So you find that and become ludicrously rich from finding this treasure. And then in Jet Set Willy, you've had a massive bender at your house, which I don't know what this was influenced by when, when <laughs> Mr. Smith was writing this one. And... I think it's it's like your secretary or something won't let you go to bed until you've cleaned the house up. So you have to go around and collect all the detritus that's scattered around the house before you can go to bed. Um, so that's the whole point of the game is it's it's a bit of a, a, a forerunner for Banjo-Kazooie, I suppose. It's a bit of a collect-a-thon. You've got to go around and collect everything you can. And then you're finally allowed to go to bed once you find the last piece and you make your way up to the bedroom only to immediately have to run to the toilet and stick your head in it, which didn't go down particularly well when uh, kids were seeing that ending. But I, I can't imagine they really understood it. If you look at the graphics, you could interpret it in many ways. But yeah, that's the point of it. And the the bug on the Spectrum was that it that one room broke all the others. But apparently the bug on the C64 and BBC Micro was that there was an object in the wine cellar that you physically couldn't reach. So you could never finish the game because you couldn't. And that wasn't uncommon in Commodore 64 games that they'd programmed it slightly broken. I remember I had a... And this was this was a big one. This was like a, a studio release game. It was a Yogi Bear one. Uh, and I think it was called like the, the Greed Monster or something. And you had to basically... This monster had captured all the other characters from like Hanna-Barbera. And you had to go around and free them all from the various situations. So there was like Snagglepuss and all these different... Yeah, Boo Boo and all these different characters. Um, I played that game a million times because I was convinced I was doing something wrong. Because whenever I finished it, I got like a, a corrupted end screen with like the monster like 
basically it looked like you'd lost even though you'd won. And I was like, I must be doing something wrong. So I must have completed that game about 20 times. And it just turns out there was something corrupted in the data. So you just always got the, the like bad end screen instead of the right one. So I'd actually completed it fine. but And that was a huge studio release. And there's still... And, and Commodore 64s and, and these old sort of home consoles, they vary from literally one to the other in how well they will work. So like one of my friends had one as well. And some games would work on his and not on mine and vice versa and... Some would corrupt halfway through on his and they wouldn't on mine. And it was like look of the draw back then as to whether a, a game that you physically bought from the shop would actually work all the way through. It was just, you can't believe that that was the case now, but but that's just how it was. Like yours might not be as good at running XYZ game as somebody else's, but then yours could run something else that theirs wouldn't even load. And it was it was a strange time, but it was fun. It was enjoyable. And yeah, I I had Jet Set Willy, but I was of an age where if there was a game-breaking bug in it, I wouldn't have ever noticed because I wouldn't have been good enough to to finish it anyway at that age. So probably did have a, a dodgy copy. But yeah, I just think if we're holding it to the same standards as today's games, they would have got absolutely slammed for this. Yeah, And like you say, it was a simple fix, and because it was home computers, you could program the fix into it yourself. So there might not have been patches to download, but literally they just put out a thing in a magazine saying, type this in before you start playing it, and it fixed all the issues. So it was easy enough to fix. It just wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't a great way to, to go about things. I think when you took eight months to do it, it should have been noticed, I suppose. Yeah. Um, uh, talking of uh, typing things in, so apparently there was a cheat code for uh, Manic Miner, um, which was, it, it was like a six to seven digit number that if you typed in at the beginning of the screen, it gave you level select. However, if you typed that uh, code in and you went to the last page, uh, the last screen, you didn't get the Swordfish logo. So it was literally blocked for from cheaters from trying to access the endgame content. However, that number, it turns out, was Matthew Smith's driver's license number. <laughs> Which is just, <laughs> if you're going to pull a number out of somewhere, you might as well do that. However, there is an <laughs> Easter egg in the first Grand Theft Auto for that six to seven digit number. And it's on the front cover of GTA, uh, the uh, oh. front page. And it's the taxi license plate is that number. And if you use that as your character name, you get infinite lives. See, this is what I mean. It, it is, it's had a big influence. Yeah. On on the gaming scene. I mean like I mean Rockstar, I could be wrong. They were a British company initially, were they? Yes. When they were first making GTA. So that's probably why they've picked up on it. If they're an American company, maybe not so much. I don't know. I don't know how far reaching these games were, like back then. Because we're we're obviously well aware of them because we grew up in England where a lot of them were being programmed. But I don't know if like I assume they made it across the pond and they were fairly big in America. Like Dizzy's like made it to America, hasn't it? And there's been loads of Dizzy games that are popular all around the world. And that was a similar situation to this, like two brothers, I think that yeah. just coded that up in the bedroom and, and that ended up being worldwide. So I, I don't know if Jet Set Willie and Manic Miner were the same, but yeah, it's the, these games obviously had a big impact. It's just, I wouldn't play them now. No, I'd, I'd, Having looked at the gameplay, I have sat there and just gone, oh, I've criticised things for less. 
um, <laughs> than the gameplay. <laughs> I've I've literally put down full 3D games and just gone, nope, not playing that, not for me. And then I look at this and I just go, oh. Uh. See, it's a difficult one for me because I did have that experience growing up and there are certain games that don't look as good as Manic Miner that if I saw them now, I would immediately be taken back and I'd be like, oh yeah, I really remember this one. It was really good and I'd play it again now. But these two weren't ones that I ever invested a lot of time in. Dizzy ones, for example, I played loads of them and they were nearly impossible to play. Like The controls weren't great. They were really hard. You only got like one hit and you're dead. But I'd play them a lot and I'd probably still give them a go now. I don't think I'd enjoy them, but I'd give them a go. Whereas these two just, yeah, they didn't leave that impression on me. And I suppose if I'd have been in my sort of early gaming years in 1983, instead of sort of 1990-ish, probably when I was starting to play them, then maybe they would have. But yeah, there'd been a lot more come out since this. Things had advanced by the time I played them. And they were games that looked a lot more realistic and a lot more with a lot more to them even on the Commodore 64, I think, by that point. So it's hard to sort of go back and say, oh, they're, they're brilliant and, and that kind of thing. Because they are for 1983, but even by 1990, I obviously weren't that enamoured with them that I'd play them all the time. So I think that means we can't really score them that high. If we were scoring them on achievement for Matthew Smith, it'd be 100. I don't think you could even argue that because to do what he did was fantastic and, and I'm still in awe of it now. But... Yeah, in terms of our list, I mean, score-wise, I'd be I'd be tempted to lump them together, like we have with a lot of other ones, because two is just a bigger. Well, Jet Set Willy is just a bigger version of Manic Miner, and you'd want to score that higher, but because it had this game-breaking bug, I think that sort of brings it back down onto the same level again. Yeah, and we've we've done similar with um, same entries in a series where they're sort of direct sequels to one another um and before i give a sort of review of what i think of them despite having never played them there are just another couple of bits i wanted to mention so it's probably a good job he did develop in in 1983 because if he developed it now he'd have been sued out the arse for all the in-house references to pop culture that he dropped in there. So there are a couple of levels in there with essentially Donkey Kong. And there is no denying that it's Donkey Kong because it's a giant-ass <laughs> monkey <laughs> that throws things at you and you can jump over them. You can climb up and pull a lever and he drops into lava or something like that. There is an, a level called Endorian Forest and it involves <laughs> Ewoks. And <laughs> it's just like... Right, okay, so the uh, the lawyers from Return of the Jedi would probably have sued you there if they'd been bothered to play it. So yeah, there were loads of like in-game, and they even used stuff like, is it Hall of the Mountain King for the soundtrack? Yeah, it was all soundtrack. Was it, it was all classical music, I think, wasn't it? So they're probably yeah. okay with that. I assume it's, can you get away with classical music? Is it not licensed anymore? I don't know the ins and outs of that. No idea, because I think they, he used Moonlight Sonata for Jet yeah. Set Willy. And the last thing was that it was supposed to be a trilogy. So they had developed what was jokingly called Jet Set Willy and the Taxman, um, oh, which yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm assuming was yet another self-referential play on Matthew Smith's life 
So we've gone from Manic Miner, where he's this young kid who's got all suddenly ends up with loads of money at the end of the development time. He then goes to this mansion for Jet Set Willy that he's managed to buy on a had an absolute mare of a night and wakes up hung over to hell and has to clean everything up. And now the tax man's got involved. Um, <laughs> but apparently they were basically put up in this house as a team to de- put development time into creating Jet Set, what would become Jet Set Willy 3. And after eight months, the the managing director for the new game company walked in and went, right, show me what you've got. And they've literally got some really nice drawings and a screen, <laughs> a still screen that said Jet Set Willy 3 on it. And they just went, yeah, in four months, I don't think so. And they literally just canned the project. <laughs> So, yeah. Because they did release Jet Set Willy 2, didn't they? But it was yeah. just... It was. It might be the very first ever remaster or yeah. uh, technically DLC because it was just a bigger version, wasn't it, of, of Jet Set Willy 1? It was polished up a bit. There was more rooms added. But it was like, yeah, a bigger, better version without any of the bugs and all that kind of thing. So the, it technically is a trilogy, although loosely <laughs> Jet Set Willy and Jet Set Willy 2 are pretty much the same game. Uh, and it was also called The Final Frontier at one point as well, Jet Set Willy The Final Frontier. So again, I'm, I don't know if that's infringing on someone's copyright. It sounds like it's coming close. Probably. <laughs> But I mean, it was like the Wild West back then, wasn't it? For games, you could get away. Yeah. I mean, you could you could probably have made a Sonic game for Commodore sixty four, unless Sega cottoned onto it. You could have made yourself rich selling it if you were good enough to program it, because it was it was like lawless. People were just copying tapes. People were passing games around each other, and that's sort of how the home thing got started, wasn't it? People were just making games in the bedroom for the mates, and they copy it onto a tape and let their friends play it, and then. If it was decent, they might end up selling a few copies down a car boot or something. And then in in Matthew Smith's case, it got incredibly popular and it got bought by a, a developer and whatnot and it, it sort of exploded from there. But no, I think rating it, looking at what we've already got, I'm 100% saying it deserves to be above Tetris because I'd play this a million times before I played Tetris. And I'd probably personally put it above Pac-Man because I'd... It's got, like you said, it's got a start and a finish. It's got something to drive towards. It's not just, right, you've done it, now do it faster on a different layout over and over again. There's actually a sort of storyline and a purpose to what you're doing. So that's that's always something I prefer to uh, do this forever and you're not actually going to really get rewarded for it. Yeah, and the overall structure of the levels change throughout Manic Miner and Jet Set Willy. So with Pac-Man, what that screen you get at the start when you first load in that level is pretty much identical to what you're going to be playing for the next six hours. Whereas Manic Miner and each biome has a different feel to it and there are different traps. You have to make pixel-perfect jumps to avoid them. Uh, the the different enemy types within it all, so it is really cleverly coded. So I I would definitely peg it above Pac Man. And some of the sprite work as well, like there's a there's like a devil's head at one point, isn't it? That you got to jump over that really stood out. That the the effort to get that looking like it's not just a lot of Commodore sixty four and and Spectrum games and Atari games were lines and squares on a screen. So I think I've mentioned this before, but I had like a street soccer game or a 
Pele soccer game or something like that. And it was literally cubes kicking around another cube into like a slightly bigger rectangle. And that was the whole game. And it's like they couldn't even be bothered to like make heads and bodies. And this was doing like these full on sprite work devil's heads that you have to jump over and like angry faces that are blowing wind at you. And it, it really was an achievement to be able to get that level of detail on a computer that wasn't designed for that kind of detail. Um, and the thing with the devil head as well. So when you first walk into that room, if you don't immediately run and jump over the head, he's literally frozen with fear and he runs back out of the room. So, I mean, again, to program that, to know that someone yeah. has input the motion to run forward rather than stand there and try... Because Manic Miner and Jet Set Willy for a smaller portion is quite methodical. You get uh, the ability to go, right, I need to go here. Oh, okay, right, I can go up here. And you take a couple of seconds to work out your path. And that in Jet Set Willy just doesn't allow you to do it. It's like, all oh, right, you want to work out where you're going, do you? Well, now you're too scared to go in that room and you run back out again. And yeah. again, that would have looked like a bug. Mm. But it was a f- fundamental part of that particular room's gameplay. So, yeah, really, really proper cr- uh, props to them for it. I think there's a room as well where it turns you into like a flying pig in there and you have to go yes. around collecting stuff. And it's just the. The thought that went into it is like borderline unhinged for some of it. Like it, Matthew Smith was obviously right on that genius madness like point, wasn't he? And and I think based on this, he was just tipping towards genius. But he'd got that input that some people have and most people don't to to come up with these random ideas that actually mesh together quite well for this surreal experience. And like I say, obviously influenced by Monty Python and all that kind of thing, where it is a lot of just complete randomness, but it works. And I think that's that that's a great way to sum up these two games. It's complete randomness on every single screen, but it works and it pulls it all together. Um, so I'd be tempted to... I mean, the next lowest on our list is uh, Super Castlevania. And to be honest, I think I'd have more fun with this than I did with that. Yeah. Even just looking at the rooms and stuff, I think I'd enjoy more than... I didn't really like Castlevania uh, for much at all. And then the next one up we've got is Quake, which, again, I probably enjoyed this more than I did Quake. Uh, And then the next one we've got up from that is Ico at 61. So Quake 60 and Ico 61. Now, I'd be tempted to give these a 61 and put them on, on par with Ico. Now, I know you liked Ico quite a lot, but I think there's enough in these, even to look at, maybe not to play, but to look at and see how well it all came together and how he did that at such a period. I think it sort of deserves it. I, I would play this more than I'd play Quake, guaranteed. Um, as, as a person who's never played these games and has literally just watched Let's Plays of the pair of them uh, over the last week or so and like I say did a bit of investigating behind the scenes I I enjoyed watching this more than I've in, ever enjoyed watching someone play Quake <laughs> just because there's colour <laughs> and there's life and there's vibrancy to it rather than another poo brown castle with poo brown enemies <laughs> it, yeah there's there's life and there's genuine it, what looks like genuine heart and passion gone into it granted it's a bit of a trippy heart and i'm not casting any aspersions as to his pastimes but i would think that by the time you get round to jet set Willie, drugs are probably involved at some point <laughs> yeah. 
So, yeah, I, I'd be... Okay, shall we give it a 60 and the proviso that it goes above Quake at 60? Yes. Even though they're on the same number, that one goes in higher on, like, principle alone. Yeah, I think if we were looking at the position 60, it would be Manic Minor, followed by Jet Set Willy, followed by Quake. I feel like we've been too generous at 60 with Quake, if I'm honest. Probably. I'm tempted... I'm tempted to retcon that down to a 59 just so Jet Set Willy and Manic Miner can have their own number. Do it. It's, it's our, our list. We can Solid. do what we want. Yeah. Right. Quake's moving down. Quake's getting a 59 now. Um, and I think by pure perseverance of Matthew Smith alone, Manic Miner and Jet Set Willy go in at, at the minute, that will put them at number 22. Out of 25, which is higher than I ever thought they were going to get when we first looked at the <laughs> yes, magazine. Same, yeah. So, yeah, with that put to bed, we want to talk about some games that we think should have made the list, not necessarily in place of Jet Set Willy and Manic Miner. It just so happens that we knew we wouldn't get an hour out of that, so this was a good enough time to do it as any. But in probably in place of games where they've doubled or tripled up, so like Sensible Soccer, we've got two of those... What else have we had that Super Mario Galaxy 1 and 2 that probably could have been lumped together? We have done Doom 1 and 2. So things like that where there's probably gaps in the list that we can fill in, especially on our list. So the two that we sort of, well, there's three, but the two that we really singled out as like, oh my God, I can't believe these aren't on the list are Crash and Spyro, which came up last week in in the Banjo-Kazooie episode. I just I don't understand it because at first I was like, oh, maybe they're too advanced. The PS1, maybe they were looking for stuff pre-PlayStation era. But then you look and there's, I think there's some PS2 games in the list. Well, there is. The Ico is a PS2. Yeah. Yeah. So, and there's the Resident Evil 2 remake in there, I think, in there. Yeah. Uh, which, which is, is it the remake? It's the Resident Evil 1 remake, which was the oh, game. Right, yeah. But still, after after the PS1. So the point still yeah. stands. So yeah, I don't really know. I don't get it. Like these Crash was one of the biggest games when it came out. It's like the PlayStation mascot and still sort of is. It's a not yeah, having him on the and list. Spyro. Yeah. Um, and then like I, I just... Spyro took a weird path but was still really popular. Like I never Skylanders wasn't ever something I was interested in, but it was massively popular and that was all off the back of Spyro. So you'd think that Spyro 1 deserved a mention in this list, but just nowhere to be found? Yeah, and I, I find it particularly odd because um, if we're going with sort of 100 games to play before you die and influential gaming and things like that, if you think about it, Crash was the one of the first games or probably the first mainstream game by Naughty Dog Games who then went on to do The Last of Us and the Uncharted series. And without the success of Crash um, and all the sequels, because all the sequels, up to and including four, so that the main mainstream titles anyway, have all been really good and really successful. Mm. The spin-offs, less so, because they did what every budding game company does, and they just created endless spin-offs. And at some point, it just got to a point where everyone was like, yeah, these, these, these um, just stop doing it and just go back to your old form and start doing proper Crash Bandicoot games again. I think when they put like tribal tattoos down his arms, it started going wrong. Yeah. 
that seems to be the point at where where things fell off. And like you say, they'd done Crash Team Racing was quite good from what I remember. I think it's the one that's come closest to to being like a Mario Kart killer, even though it wasn't quite as good. Uh, but like Crash Bash was it was really bad, which was like a Mario Party ripoff. So yeah, they went down the route of whatever Mario does, we're gonna copy it and see what happens. And it didn't work out for most cases. But yeah, the four mainline games are brilliant, especially three. I think, is it three warped? Yes. That's like the pinnacle for me of Crash games. And then, yeah, they took a bit of a dip. And then the new one, I've still not played the new one. Um, I've got it, but I've not played it. And apparently it's really hard. That's all I've been told. Stupid hard. And I think that's something else to push towards crash really because gaming used to be difficult however i think crash saw the amount of piss that everyone was taking with how difficult they were making the games and what sort of dusted the hands off went hold my beer i'll show you how to make a difficult game because some of those levels if the older ones less so so crash the original crash one had sort of a bit of forgiveness in it and then as you get further through the um, series and you get to the remake, the recent remake of Crash 1, that is just awful. The hitboxes have all been smoothed off, so what you used to be able to jump, you can't. And it's just, yeah, so the, the remake is faithful in the fact that we've obviously, gaming's matured. So they've thought, oh, well, it was hard back then. Watch what we can do now. But yeah, so I think it was one of the first properly challenging challenging video games and not challenging because the controls were crap i remember looking back at it now i can't believe how i because i under percented at least the first two because there's more to it than just getting to the end of the level isn't there there's gems and relics and and all that business to collect and to 100 percent it and i definitely 100 percented two i think i did one I think I came close on Warped, but they, they get bigger with every iteration, don't they? There's more to collect. And I was getting to the point where I was playing less as well by that point. So by Crash 3, I I was content to just finish it rather than wanting to sit and 100% it all. But yeah, looking back at it now, I don't know how I did because I got that remake and that remake made me feel like garbage because I was like, I used to be good at this. What happened? Like I can't even get past like one level. But then, yeah, I found out about the smoothing. Like, it, it's the bridge level, isn't it? It's the yeah. bridge level that gets everyone because they've smoothed the edges of the little bits of wood that you meant to land on. So unless you land dead centre, you just slip off it. And it was hard enough in the original, but it is nearly impossible in the remake. I'd, I'd like to blame uh, my inability to complete the remake of Crash on my age um, and my dimming vision and... The fact that I uh, I need 30 or 40 seconds of advance warning before I get up out of a chair these days. <laughs> but I can do Dark Souls. And that yeah. is twitch reflex, pattern recognition, and dodge rolling at the right time, stamina management, that sort of thing. So I can do that still, and I can do stuff like Elden Ring, Bloodborne. I could not finish the remake of Crash. I just couldn't do it. I think I've been broken to stuff like that. I had a lot more patience when I was younger. And I think in the age of like streaming and YouTube and all this, I just want instant gratification. If I can't do something straight away, I'm not interested anymore. Whereas like back in the day, I'd just grind at it and I'd be like, no, I'm not going to let it beat me. And now I've put the Crash remake on, played it for 10 minutes. I'm like, I'm 
I'm shit at this now and just turn it back off. Like, not, <laughs> I'll try and get better so I can finish it. It was just, no, it's not for me anymore. I'm done. Uh, and that was it. And that's the same with the Spyro Reignited trilogy. I mean, I don't know if they've broken that in the remit, in the remaster or not, but I'm not good at that game anymore either. And I used to be really good at Spyro um, in like, yeah, 1996 and 1998 when they were released. I was really good at them games. And now I, I struggle with the first few levels. And it's it's sad to, to know that. And I don't know whether it's... I'd like to think it's because they've broken them in some way. And if I booted up the originals, I'd be as good as I ever was. But I don't think it is. I think I've just lost some dexterity, lost some patience. And I just don't got time for it anymore. <laughs> I think it's probably the more the patience side of things. Um, I I picked up the um, Reignited trilogy and I 100%ed the first game because that, that was the only one I had when I was a kid. I didn't have two or three. Um, and I always remembered getting to the last boss, Nasty Nook, and just I couldn't do it. I, as a as a ten year old, I just could not get my head round a boss battle like that. It was just weird. The running, the jumping over pools, and because you can't swim, um, and gliding in some sort of repetitious circle to, uh, arena, I just couldn't get my head round it. But I hundred percented that one, and then I tried the second two. And I was just left a bit cold by it. It just didn't feel the same as the first one. The first one's got proper nostalgia points for me. I feel like I had one and two, but I'm the same. I didn't remember anything about two when I booted it up. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I had this game, but I don't remember a single thing about it. Like you boot up one and you're in that meadow, that first little meadow. And it's like, ah, yeah, I'm back home. I remember all this. But the second one, I was just like, did I play this? I don't remember any of these characters or any of this storyline or anything about it. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'll have to dig out my old PlayStation discs and see if I actually did have it because I'm I'm fairly confident with how much I liked the first one, I would have got the second one. But it's like it's been wiped from my memory because I definitely had all the Crash games. So you'd think you'd follow the same pattern with Spyro if you're a fan of it. And I definitely had Croc which we've talked about before, and I don't know if you uh, you saw on Facebook, but I think score one point for the Bucket List Gamers because they're doing, a, they're doing a HD remaster of Croc now, which we called for about seven episodes ago. I'd like to think we had some sort of influence on that. I, I have realised that we are starting to sound really old. In these episodes, yeah. we're like, oh, gaming these days, it's not what it used to be. Oh, my little hands can't take it anymore. I've not got the reflexes I used to. And did yeah, I we've, play we've, Spyro we've, too? <laughs> we've gone from one end of the spectrum to the other because we've slated Manic Miner because it's too old. And then <laughs> yeah. now, gone, now we're too old to be playing these games that we enjoyed as yeah. kids. But no, I, I do like Spyro and I do like Crash. And I, I like, again, I like the character models. I like the, the look of it. I've got, similar to the Banjo-Kazooie one, I've got a Spyro um, and a Crash pad holder literally just behind me here and then they really i really do like the designs of crash and the designs of spyro not so much again when he got tribal tattoos down his arms and stuff i think that went a bit weird but the original crash and the original mask and the the villains and like neocortex and all them i think they for the time they looked brilliant and they've kept them faithful all the way through the series and they keep bringing the same bosses back, like Ripperoo and and Tiny and 
and people like that that you recognize from one game to the next. And I just like that world that they've built. And like you say, there's been some bad games set in that world. But I think, what was the latest one called? Was it Crashing Time or something like that? Yeah, something like that. I think that's took it back to being sort of faithful to the original ones. Um, So it'd be interesting to see if they do any more. And I would love, because I know they did a Crash Spyro crossover on Game Boy Advance, was it? But it was rubbish. Where you got a purple and an orange cartridge and you were meant to, again, ripping off the Pokemon thing. They were completely different games, but you were meant to buy one each and swap them with friends. I don't know what the, the gimmick was, but they were both rubbish games. So I'd love to see a proper Crash Spyro crossover game where they sort of work together or or something like that. That would be great to see. But it seems like they've gone off Spyro a bit since the Reignited trilogy. Yeah, I know it wasn't made by... Um, the original company because it was made by Toys for Bob, the remaster, yeah. uh, the trilogy. Um, and they've done some really good um remasters because I think they did the Crash Bandicoot remaster as well. They were uh, involved Toys... in and one of the Crash ones. Yeah, I don't know if yeah. it was that or the the new game, but yeah, that seems to be their thing, doesn't it? Remastering. I'll be interested to see who gets Croc because it might be them again. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. But yeah, I just it's probably my nostalgia, to be fair, um, of these games from when I was a kid. But I find it bizarre that how influential these and how popular these games were. And not just mm. popular because they were the only things we had, they were genuinely good games. And yeah, yeah. retro gamers just gone, nah, don't want it. Just ignore them. I mean, I, the story I've got for Crash 1... I don't know if I've told it on the podcast. I don't think I have, but I'm, I'm going to tell it again if I haven't. So Crash was the reason I got a PlayStation because I'd seen the adverts on TV and I was like, oh, that game looks amazing. I really want that game. So I'd nagged my parents over and over again to get me a PlayStation because at the time I got Game Gear, which was well past its date where good games were coming out for it. I don't think I had a PC, so I did a, a fair bit of PC gaming at that time waiting to get like another console. And yeah, I saw Crash and I was like, I want this game. And I nagged my parents to death. And then Christmas morning, came down, big box wrapped under the tree with some little square boxes. I'm like, I know what this is. So I ripped it open. PlayStation 1, nice one. Three games. I'm like, one of them's going to be Crash, 100%. Unwrapped the first one, added Ass Power Soccer that had obviously just come with the console. Unwrapped the second one, Tekken 2. Like, good game, not what I'm after. I'm like... But here it is. Here's Crash. So I've got this game in my hand, opened it. Porsche Challenge. I was like, what is this? And like, you know, like when you, you don't want to sound like disappointed and ungrateful, but at the same time, you're really disappointed. And I was like, oh, yeah, thanks. And I was like proper all morning. I was like, I'm playing on it. And I enjoyed Tekken and stuff. But deep down, I was like, I can't believe they've done this. They know that I wanted it for Crash. And I was like raging inside. And then we had dinner. And then my mum's like, oh, um just grab so-and-so out of that cupboard. And I open this cupboard and there's another present wrapped up in there. She's like, oh, I must have forgot about that one. I unwrapped it and it was Crash. And I was like, again, I was like really happy and angry and annoyed at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) So it was like, it was a real, really mixed emotion Christmas, the Christmas of uh, 1996. Like, (laughs) but yeah, I eventually got it. And I think I played it like all night. Like I got my own little TV by that point as well. So I was like, hooked it all up and just played Crash all night. Probably got past about three levels, given how hard it was. But yeah, that was that was why I ended up with a PS1 instead of an N64. 
No, you haven't mentioned that on the on the podcast before because you've not even <laughs> mentioned that to me. But uh, that for the <laughs> listeners is uh, how how Jay's mom nearly ruined Christmas. <laughs> well, she did for about four hours and then uh, <laughs> pulled it around at the end, and it was a cruel trick to play on a young child that was desperate for that game. But it all worked out in the end, and I got it in there. Uh, Maybe she just didn't want me playing on it all day. I think that's probably what it was because she, I probably wouldn't have had dinner if I'd have got crashed before we had dinner. Yeah. Just been like, no, I'm not coming down for it. I'm just playing on this all day. So, tactical move probably. But no, I could I could see those two games easily being on this list, and it's just baffling that they're not. Like, especially when they've spawned so many sequels, and then Skylanders and. There just seems to be like this massive lineage to those two games that, like you say, Retro Gamer have just stuck two fingers up at and gone, no, you're not getting on our list. But Sensible Soccer and Sensible World of Soccer, come on in. You can have two spots on the list. I, I mean, I'm probably being very disingenuous when I say this about the uh, list, but it does feel like they've gone very Nintendo-biased. Well, yeah, and... I don't know if this influences it, but after they put out the list we are working from, they did a top 100 Nintendo games to play before you die. And I suspect about 50 of them are exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if, yeah, but I don't I don't know how it was compiled. It's very sort of vague as to how it got put together. It, it says that it was voted on by the readers, and it also mentions that it's the second or at least the second version of the list, because next to Manic Miner at 30, it says previous position 7. So they must have had a list previously where Manic Miner was at number 7. And then 90% of the games in here say previous number NA. So it's almost like they had this old list and then they flooded it out with new stuff. But I don't know whether when they say the readers voted on it, whether they gave them a list of 300 games and went yeah. pick your favourites, or whether it was a free type box. But if it was a free type box, I can't believe that Crash and Spyro haven't made it in, and Sensible Soccer and Sensible World of Soccer have. So I think it was a predetermined set of games, and they've people have ranked them. Maybe it was only a hundred, and people have ranked them. I don't know. It's 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 very mysterious. Is the best I can say. Yeah, it does sort of feel like they, like you say, they gave them um, a list of a thousand games. And then, because it seems very odd that people would vote for both the uh, Sensible Soccer and Sensible World of Soccer. So it would obviously depend what you had as a kid. So obviously, if you had the first one, you'd vote for that one. If you had the second one, you'd vote for that one. So, yeah, it does sound like they were given like a thousand games to vote into and maybe Crash and Spyro hit 102, 103, and they just didn't make the cut because not enough people voted for it. But yeah, it just feels a bit very Nintendo heavy. Pokemon Red and Blue being relatively high up, and then Pokemon Gold and Silver being ninety-seven, and you're like, "Well, where's every other Pokemon game?" Yeah. If you've got those two in there, where's Coliseum? Where's Stadium? Where's Snap? Where's Pokemon the Trading Card Game? Do you know what I mean? There's there's loads. You'd think, and this is why I reckon. They maybe gave them a cherry pick list of maybe 150 and got them to rank them like first to last. Also, I don't know. I'd love to know how they did it, but yeah, it seems shrouded in mystery. Maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll write to them, try and find out. I'm pretty sure it doesn't say. I'm just having a look now. 
were we wanting to rank Spyro and Crash, or are we just happy and content to say that they've missed it off the list and they've missed their chance? Tell you what, we'll we'll rank it and we'll put it in our list because we're not going to have a hundred by the end of this. Yeah. And what I'll do is I'll put it in a different colour or something. So you can see, or I'll just put like NA in the list, like where it says where they'd rated it. Okay, so there's a little bit of information here in the start of it. Everyone loves a good list and Retro Gamer Readers are no exception. All the way back in issue 150, we asked readers what the greatest games of all time were and we were amazed at the feedback. Of course, readers who have been with Retro Gamer since its inception will realise that a similar list first appeared in issue 8, a staggering 175 issues ago. That's over 13 years ago, which is an insane amount of time in video games. Blah, 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 blah. The original list in 2004 had readers voting for over 700 individual games across 30 formats. This time around, that impressive record was smashed with over 1,400 games being voted for. Keeping with the stats, 61 games from the original list remain too. So we've shown you the previous positions in our list. So yeah, it looks like it was literally just submit whatever game you want. Which makes these results even more baffling. Yeah. The only thing I can think is that Retro Gamer Magazine has a very niche set of fans that have voted for it and, and like they're not considering Crash and Spyro and that kind of thing. They're more set in their ways on what games they were looking for, which but then that makes some of the entries in it really bizarre. Even more so now. Like yeah. games that really stand out, so I don't know. It's an enigma, this list. And what we are now, I think we've done about 30-odd of them. So we're getting there. We're getting to the point where we can just do what we want, um, which is pretty much what we did today. But I feel like we did cover quite a bit on on the two games we had to. So, yeah, in terms of ranking Crash and Spyro, so we gave them on the 260, didn't we? Let me just make a note of that before I forget. So Crash, just Crash 1 or Crash as a collective, like 1 to 4? I'd probably say as a collective, because we've we've taken direct sequels and remakes and stuff like that, and we're unifying them in terms of right these get the same score because there's technically no difference to them. And in terms of gameplay, not much develops in the mainline series of Crash games. Gets a bit smoother. You get weapons, I think, and that's about it. Yeah, there's still the ones where you ride animals, that kind of thing. Yeah, which. That follows through all the games, doesn't it? And then, yeah, like you say, same with Spyro. You get more moves, I think, and and the controls, the flying controls and stuff get a little bit tighter, but not much. So is it Spyro 1 to 3? It was a trilogy, wasn't it? That's yes. what they remade. Um, excluding Skylanders and all that stuff, because I don't know enough about that to, to comment on whether that was good or not. I mean, it sold amazingly, so it must have done something right, but... We'll we'll leave that for now. So I'd I'd rank Crash higher than Spyro. I think just just because of the the nostalgia I've got for it. Uh, I think uh, objectively Spyro is the better game in terms of it's a lot more free roaming and the controls are probably a bit tighter and there's more variety and that kind of thing. But personal preference, I would put Crash slightly higher myself. And I'm the reverse. Um, I I didn't have the patience when I was a kid to play Crash and get good at it. Um, that was something I learned, uh, a skill I learned much later on. Um, I always had that instant gratification thing when I was younger, and then I developed the whole keep trying, keep plugging away at it, keep plugging away at it out of spite, probably, more than anything. Um, 
but yeah, so I, I'd rate Spyro higher. So if you want, we could just put both together. I was just thinking that, give them the same score. So, yeah. I mean, just looking at the list we've got, I don't think I'd put it above Sonic 2. No. Personally, I think Sonic 2 is more important to me than Spyro and Crash, as much as I enjoyed them. Bioshock's at a 79, Doom 1 and 2's at a 78. Would you say 77 was a fair place to put them both? What's underneath 77? Uh, so there's nothing at 77 and then Shadow of Colossus at 76. So I would say I enjoyed Spyro and Crash more than Shadow of the Colossus, and that is saying something. Well, it's not saying something for me to say that. Not for you, no. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if anything, one point differential is not enough for me, but we're a bit we're a bit stacked above that. So yeah, we'll go with 77. I think that's fair. I'll put them in and I'll stick them in a different colour just to sort of say... These are our choices rather than theirs, but we've already took out one, two, three. We've already taken three out of the list by combining others, so we've added two back in. So we've balanced it a bit now. We've got a couple coming up that are planned to be sort of, we're probably going to end up scoring them the same anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not not to give spoilers, there are games within the list that there are two entries for... That could be and one. they are essentially the identical games. So, th- yeah, th- there are stuff that we are probably going to end up unifying under that, so we're probably going to end up having to add a few more of our own in anyway. So, I mean, one I've been playing recently is because we got the N64 pads, didn't we, for Switch when they managed to re-release, so I managed to get a couple of them. Uh, so I've been going through the N64 collection on Switch, and I've landed on Paper Mario, and I've been playing that. I think I'm about 12 hours in now. So I've actually put some dedication into a game for the first time in about three or four years uh, and got quite far in it. And I'm, in, I'm really enjoying it. So yeah, I'd like... And this is the thing, right? I know we've said, oh, there's too many entries for the same game in there and there's a ton of Mario games in it. But Paper Mario is so far removed from all the rest of the Mario games that are in this thing. If any were valid and warranted like a spot on the list, I think that is one of them. So yeah, maybe we'll have to talk about that at some point. Yeah, particularly as we've discussed in previous episodes, when Nintendo do something different with an existing property, I mean, 50% of the time it's great, like Paper Mario. I mean, the other 50% it's a great heap of shit. But um, <laughs> like what they did with Mario Party, not exactly great games for the majority, <laughs> really. But then you do get Paper Mario, which is... Mario's quirky cousin that just does something a lot different and it's better for it. Yeah, Mario Party 1, good. Mario Party 2, 3, 4, probably all right. I think you get to like, is it about 5 or 6 that they start getting a bit weird and then they did that thing where you're all travelling at the same pace which completely ruins the whole game. Um, And it's only since maybe the last two, I think, where they've got back to basics and they've actually been decent again. But yeah, I'm sure it's not in the list, but I'm sure we'll do a Mario Party special at some point because there's a lot to say. I've still got the copy of of Mario Party that's got a slur in it that they tried to recall. Yes, I remember that. (laughs) I think it was was the first one for Wii, wasn't it? And um, it it means something different over here to what it means in America. uh, Yeah. They left it in, and and yeah, they tried to recall it, and I refused to send mine back. So I've still got, I don't know if it's worth anything, but I've still got a copy that's got a a slur in there, spoken on on the train level. But I'm sure we'll come to cover that off. If if you don't know what that is, Google it. It's not hard to find. But yeah, it's 
pretty bad that they they managed to not pick that up before they released it. Yeah, I know there's like slang and stuff like that in different countries, and different things mean different things. But that is pretty universal. That that slur that <laughs> outside of America, the, the the word that's used is pretty much derogatory in every other culture. I'm surprised it's not in America as well. To be honest, like I suppose it it's more they use it more literally over there. Then I don't know, but. Yeah. Yeah, you you wouldn't get away with it over here, but they shoved it in there. So yeah, I think that is pretty much us done for this episode. Um, other than to say, thank you once again to our patrons. So the lucky couple of coins patron today is Lee. And in our bucket kicker tier, we've got the Sweaty Llama and Dino Dini. So thank you to you guys. That still makes Eddie laugh every time I say it. Um, But yeah, thank you to you guys. As always, we really appreciate it. And we are actually planning on doing some bonus content, which will be available for you as soon as we get it recorded and I can find the time to edit it. So yeah, I think that covers off another episode episode 17 so we're, we're cracking through them we've not given up yet are you uh are you still enjoying it as much as you were on episode one i am actually more so to be fair i was a bit when you go into these sorts of ventures the first couple of episodes are always am i doing the right thing i'm a bit nervous of this do i sound okay still can't sound stand the sound of me and voice but i'm still enjoying it i think the the listeners um i keep wanting to call them the viewers but we're not available to see so um but yeah, yeah. the listeners are in are enjoying what we put out there evidently so seeing as we're, we're still hitting all-time highs in terms of overall downloads and listenership and stuff like that so yeah massive thank you to the people that are uh, still supporting us uh, even by listening and downloading and recommending us to friends and family and people who you really don't like and want to suffer so you just <laughs> yeah listen to this uh, it's really good honest um <laughs> yeah genuinely i know all content creators do the whole gushing at their audience but genuinely it does mean a massive amount to us um because as we've said previously it gives our lives validation so thank you <laughs> Yeah, and I'm enjoying it as well. I mean, I've, you always have the main worries that you're going to say something you regret. I don't think we've done that yet. I mean, there's been there's been times that have come close, um, and and you've not heard the stuff I've had to edit out when Eddie gets going. But <laughs> but no, there's a. I don't think we've we've done too bad so far. And yeah, it is it is sometimes a bit of a tightrope, especially with the topic we're looking at, because gaming is such an opinionated field and people have the things they love and the things they hate and they hate it when somebody hates something they love, which is I'm sure what we've done on multiple occasions. I mean, you give a you give Pac-Man and Tetris like 40, 50 rates out of 100, you're going to upset someone. Um, and if we have, we're really sorry, but it is just our opinion. And hopefully we caveated why we've given it those scores and, and explained it well enough that you'll understand. But yeah, so far... Fingers crossed, we've not had any hate come our way. We've had a couple of nice reviews, actually, that we we found the other day that were written ages ago on, on a couple of websites. So, yeah, if, if you wrote those reviews, I don't know who, who wrote them, but if you did, thank you for that. It brightened our day when we read those ones. Um, and, yeah, I think all that's left for me to say on this episode, then, is goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And I think we need to work on how we do endings. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> 